Welcome to Podagogies. I'm Chelsea Jones. And I'm Curtis Maloli. Today we're picking up on an ongoing conversation about artificial intelligence in higher education. Everyone's talking about it, but nobody seems to quite know what to do about it. Obviously, there's no question that at all levels, we have to reckon with the impact of artificial intelligence on how students learn, on how professors assess learning, and how we all increase our digital literacy in the classroom. Joining us today are three people who work closely with AI in different ways. Dr. Lai Chi Fan is an assistant professor of sociology and legal studies at the University of Waterloo, who recently co-authored a paper with ChatGPT. Welcome, Lai Chi. So happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Jan Freiters is a professor at Brock University, where he's been teaching with ChatGPT in the Department of Child and Youth Studies. Welcome. Happy to be here. And Allison Miller is an academic integrity specialist at Toronto Metropolitan University, who's been leading a community of practice focused on AI teaching and curriculum. Welcome, Allison. Uh, hello, everybody. Super excited to be here. And Allison, uh, you were one of the first people to put AI on our radar at uh, TMU long before ChatGPT became a big thing. Uh, and you've really been a leader on our campus in facilitating conversations about the impacts of large language models on learning and teaching. Um, as you've been, you know, leading discussions on campus with faculty, um, you know, what has been the focus of, of uh, your approach and the thinking that you've been doing? Well, I'll say that my approach has been um, kind of unbridled enthusiasm. I've enjoyed it so much. I've kind of talked about the topic in a number of different ways. We have a very active community of practice. A lot of people are interested in the topic and then a lot of interest even beyond that. And I've looked at it in terms of assessment design. I've looked at it in terms of leveraging it for simplifying administrative tasks and things like that. I've looked at how to support students around the use of it, and certainly looked at it through the lens of academic integrity. I'm wondering when you're talking to faculty members, um, what are some of the most pressing themes or most common things that, that are raised when, when you're having those conversations? Well, I think the first thing that seems to come up, I think this is just knee jerk really, is concerns around academic integrity. That's the first thing. And there's a, there's a lot of anxiety around that and assessment and being able to maintain the rigor in their courses and those kinds of things. But that tends to be the starting point, but it doesn't tend to remain the focus, which is kind of interesting. So Laichi, tell us about your engagement with large language models lately. Thank you for that question. Uh, lately, I've been interested in large language models as an extension of some of my work on technological design, but only recently, especially with the public introduction of ChatGPT, has it started to seep into my everyday life, especially in teaching. At this point, my research and teaching are converging in new ways, and I've been interested in how we think about existing forms of critique and academia as they pertain to like how we practice them and also how we teach them. And Johan, how, how about you? What has your work with large language models been? Recently, I think probably with the mass popularity and how quickly traction has been gained with the public release of, you know, GPT-4 and 3.5 and chatbots, I've been trying to sort out ways to not have to retrain as a plumber or an electrician, although there is a certain appeal to that. So recently, as far as actual application of this in the classroom, I've been investigating ways to create hyper-enriched feedback 
to graduate students in ways that I could never as an instructor. And secondly, at the undergrad level, I've been trying to investigate how to use large language models to help students query their own knowledge in terms of you know, functional steps they need to complete assignments on the one hand, and then on the instructor's side to do assessment expectation audits and to conduct skill trees and to do all this in an interactive kind of dialogic way with the student to open the discussion around use of large language models in, in the academy. Jan, what happened when you started bringing ChatGPT or AI into your classroom? First thing that happened is that I realized I had to do a lot more deep thought about AI pedagogy and, and teaching with assists. And I guess that's, that's the way it emerged, which is to sort out where the assist or where the lift could be given to AI in a way that um, enhances the value of what students get from us as instructors. The second thing that happened is that I realized that academic integrity was much more of a side issue when compared to pedagogical integrity. Yeah, we will definitely be getting into that. And I, you know, you mentioned that kind of idea of the, the assist or the lift that would be given uh, from AI. And, and Lychee, you, you've co-authored a paper. So talking about an assist, you've co-authored a paper with uh, Chad PPT. What led you to want to do that? I think at the time, I was already familiar with GPT as an AI system that was released by OpenAI, and the conversation started to be about what the future of the essay would be. And there was a lot of conversation around fear and assessment, future models of assessment. And not that we shouldn't be cautious and, and aware and knowledgeable in talking about what the potentials are of these things, but I wanted to demonstrate that ChatGPT could actually be a really good research tool, but more so um, that the essay itself perhaps needs to be reimagined or how could it be reimagined? So that's what that was initially about. Then let's talk about that. Let's talk a little bit about reimagining the essay and with that reimagining pedagogy as well. Jan, you mentioned this earlier that you were challenged to think deeply about pedagogy. What did that mean for you? And does it connect to what Lechi's saying about reimagining something like an essay? I think it connects quite profoundly. And this is where I will, with apologies, try to dip into philosophy. And in this case, classical philosophy. And just, you know, to remind myself and everyone that there are classical philosophical divisions or contextualizations that we can't escape. You know, one of those is the idea of the endoxa. This was starting from Aristotle's notion that we have to start in our reasoning from somewhere. And so what do we choose as the somewhere from which we start? And this is the idea of the endoxa or repository of reputable beliefs. I just did air quotes. The idea that we have a repository now that is not only comprehensive in terms of its scope of received knowledge, but is instantly queryable from our own perspective. And that, that interaction with the endoxa changes the whole part of an essay, which is the student being able to demonstrate that they know the baseline knowledge from which to make their own unique contributions. 
that baseline knowledge is now instantly accessible at a level of a moderate expert. Um, so this, this is perhaps one of the ways that I'm seeing a shift in the hoops that we make students jump through in order to demonstrate their baseline knowledge may have simply been made obsolete and or need to be reframed. Lai I saw you nodding enthusiastically there at one point. <laughs> what was it that connected with you there? The reconceptualization of knowledge itself and the understanding of knowledge as the presentation of information, because the ways in which it's happening now, there's a lot of misunderstanding that content that's being produced by these trained large language models is similar to the kind of information that you would get from, let's say, a reputed source that it seems to know what it's doing, but it doesn't. As part of my collaboration with writing with ChatGPT, it would often give me sources that don't exist. So a lot of double checking has to be done, but in that sense, it's not, it's the more interesting thing is that the, the assuredness with which ChatGPT presents itself can be problematic in that someone who doesn't know what they're looking for or doesn't know that there's potential bias or incorrect presentation of information, they might see that not as information, but as knowledge, not as just generated content, but as something that is closer to something that is known. Something that is even potentially, depending on what it is, like if it's producing code, something that's almost axiomatic and that's not true. So part of that for me is like the tool is powerful, but its limitations and what it's actually doing is equally important to analyze, including if we are going to use the word belief, it's more about how it may reinforce ideological beliefs or beliefs that we have that are projected through these tools. That's where belief comes in. But like, well, what we mean by knowledge has to be reconsidered. Like, what is automated knowledge? You know, as, as I hear the two of you speaking about this, I'm wondering to myself, all right, how do I communicate this to students? How do I teach them about automated knowledge? How do I teach them about AI? And how do I teach them about the illusion that I think you're describing here, right? Because it is so easy to attribute intelligence to systems like ChatGPT because of the animacy that they offer, right? They seem to be sort of in exchange. Um, there seems to be something happening. I think, you know, we're, we're not going to be operating without AI any longer. This is going to become part of the fabric of pedagogy. So how do we take these high-level conversations and bring them into the classroom in a good way, in an invitational way, in a way that doesn't play on any moral panic that might be happening around. Allison, maybe I'll, I'll point that question at you for now, and anyone else is welcome to chime in. I think that conversation with students is super important. I want to say, though, that talking about it in abstract terms is going to do far less for students than actually teaching them through action. One thing you can do that I've been talking to instructors about is having students generate an essay entirely with, say, ChatGPT or whatever large language model they have access to, and then having them do the hard work of identifying research that supports the claims that are in that essay, and also identifying misrepresentation of facts within it. And in doing something like that, they're doing... Uh, quite a bit of critical thinking about the subject matter. And they're also learning about hallucinations. They're learning about, you know, some of the weaknesses of large language models. 
So that's one way that we can help students, not just tell them what's wrong with it, but help them live it so that they have a deeper understanding of it. So I'll stop there and let other people make other suggestions. Allison, I, I couldn't agree more that engaging students with AI directly and having a conversation about that engagement is really the only way forward. Um, I recently started to use that kind of model in my third year undergraduate course on uh, statistics. So this is statistical application. It's a, it's a closed set topic. There's a body of, of received knowledge that the students have to master. Part of it is procedural, part of it is conceptual. And engaging, in this case, a large language model to simultaneously construct tasks that functionally are identical for the students and for me as a way of having a shared conversation about that task. So I'll get really concrete. The task was use GPT to create a knowledge checklist and then a to-do list on how to complete the assignment that I set. Here's the student side task. The professor side task was um, watch me as I audit my own assignment for the skills implied in what's needed to complete the assignment and watch my nervousness as I hit enter and some skills that you haven't experienced in the prerequisite come up and I have to go back and revise this assignment for you. That involves error correction. It involves them witnessing me engaging with the thing I'm asking them to engage with but also moving the conversation for the students away from AI as a chatbot, AI as a big dictionary toward different functional usages. Wachi, did you want to follow up on that? Sure. What I admire most, in, well, many things in what Yana said, but in particular, the transparency with which the process is being outlined and shared with the students so that they feel like they're part of it. And maybe a good example of this is just the ways in which a calculator, it's a useful tool, but um, if you don't understand the math, you can't do anything with a calculator, which is not to say we have to understand how ChatGPT works perfectly, but that there are limitations to the things you can do with the tool without understanding the concepts behind them or one's own agency with one can do with tools that are offered to us. ChatGPT is not just a chatbot. BARD is not just the chatbot. And being open and, and having an open conversation about this, I think sounds really, really productive. Yeah, Allison. I just want to go to the calculator thing because it comes up so often. And the reason why I think it's so interesting is because the people who built the calculator knew how to do the math before they built the calculator and they knew why and how the calculator worked when it was created. Now we have these large language models where the developers themselves don't even really know why and how it works exactly. So there's a lot of questions and like abilities of these large language models that are emerging. I'm doing air quotes this time um, because they were not predicted. And this is what makes this so interesting to me. Um, I agree, Allison. The developers don't even know what has been created. And I say the developers, and there's never been a more diffuse set of engineers involved in a project. But the notion of what tool we have chosen to call this speaks volumes about how we use the tool itself. And I, I can't help but go back in a little bit in history into the 60s and Joseph Weizenbaum and Eliza. I'm, I'm barely old enough to remember Eliza, but this was the original chatbot that 
set the paradigm for human-computer interaction as being a low-bar Turing test as a way to understand how our role is in the system. I say Turing test not because any of these large language models have been constructed to be a Turing test, but there's an implicit low-level baseline assumption that unless you appear without any friction to be another human, you're not worth considering as, as a model to interact with. So reorienting this, the chatbot paradigm is something that everyone knows. In order for OpenAI to have traction, in order for ChatGPT to have millions and then billions of people using it, they need a culturally present paradigm to use. And the chatbot is that paradigm. I saw a wonderful tweet by Daniel C. Dennett, who said, we would go so much further with large language models if we stopped talking to them as if they're humans. When GPT-3 was in use, in active use, the proof of concept demonstration was, can we do a closed Turing test and make GPT-3 sound so convincingly like Daniel C. Dennett that we trick people that they're talking to Daniel C. Dennett? And that was a, a notable, interesting thing to wrap some, some thoughts around. You know, as I'm listening to this, I, my mind's going in, in a bunch of different directions, but you know, to bring it back to teaching for a second, you know, this idea of how we interact with ChatGPT and even kind of what it, what it means to be a professor at the front of the room uh, and what the role of the professor is in the context of this. I was thinking about how, you know, often when I'm lecturing and a student will ask a question, the student is trying to figure out something, trying to understand something that I'm saying in the lecture and they'll ask a question. And then I give a response. Sometimes, hopefully, that response is useful for that student, although I can tell by their faces occasionally it's not. Um, but what ChatGPT allows us to do is, and I've seen Allison do this many times in querying ChatGPT, like if I have a question and I can keep in this iterative process getting feedback from ChatGPT that is really specific to my own language and thinking about the question, um, I can get a really tailored answer to the thing that, that's bothering me in a way that I can't in a classroom if I'm a student and I'm sitting with all kinds of other students and there's many different questions and, and things happening. And I'm just wondering, like, as you are all thinking about teaching with ChatGPT and, and what, what its function might be in the understanding of what you're teaching, I'm trying to move forward this line that we're talking about into like engaging with our students. And, and Jan, didn't you also say that you used it? The students got feedback from, from it in your course, right? That was at the graduate level. And that was a sort of uh, unidirectional exercise for me and a little bit of an experiment with the students. So I, I didn't tell them um, that I was going to be utilizing this technology, not in order to grade an assignment. And the assignment was to write a research proposal. And this was a course on research methodology at the graduate level. So I was intending to grade it traditionally, but to provide AI-assisted feedback. And the nature of that feedback was to say, okay, what would happen if I took all the frameworks that I have for evaluating a research proposal, intellectual frameworks around what constitutes a research design that would result in knowledge that would be trustworthy? What would happen if I took those frameworks and presented those frameworks to the large language model, along with a framework of 
what kind of feedback can you give to a student such that the exercise becomes a learning event? When those frameworks came into contact with the student writing itself to generate a 500 to 1,000 word document of feedback, the effect of presenting that feedback to the students and saying, hey, you know, how was your feedback? And their response was, that is the best feedback we have literally ever received from any professor in our entire student career. And then I said, well, your grade was determined by me, but the feedback was determined by this process that I went through, in this case with GPT-4, to which the students, the very, very first response was, well, then why do we need you at all? That, of course, was a moment where I had to really start thinking. And it was about the same time I was, I was reading something from Slavoj Zizek, and his statement was something like this. Now, I'm, I'm reconstructing the statement. We only feel free because we lack the capacity to express how we are not free. And that moment with those students was coming into contact with an existential moment of lack of freedom because I was given language to express how I am not free as an instructor, both not free vis-a-vis -vis this emerging technology, but not free vis-a-vis -vis what it actually means to actually be an instructor. Allison, I can see you on the Zoom screen here, and I saw you had a big reaction when Jan offered the students feedback to his, his practice of getting ChatGPT to produce feedback. Um, what was going through your mind? Um, a lot of things. There's a question, a philosophical question, I guess, about whether we as humans value things that come from machines the way we value words that come from human beings, when we know that it's automatically generated, when that information is really factual, that's okay. We don't mind that. But when we're getting something that is speaking to our personal development, especially in a relationship between a graduate supervisor or, you know, any instructor student relationship, there's mentorship going on and there's this human component. So I'm like really reluctant when I'm talking to faculty about how they can leverage AI to, you know, make their lives easier. My recommendations are around the administrative garbage that we all have to do in our jobs in order to free up time so that you don't automate those things that are so meaningful, those connections with students and the mentorship. Like I understand, I absolutely understand Jan's experiment. I think it's super interesting. I also know that if that was me, I'd be hurt because there's a relationship there, right? That I'm building when I'm working with somebody like that. And I think I would really be sad if I found out that that feedback that was developing me as a professional came from AI. My tea, feel free to chime in. Just really quickly, I think that the personal understanding of the student is also lost. When, for instance, we get to see the development and growth of individual students, the personalized touch is gone. If I'm going to just keep plugging into a machine, which is not to say that a generative model cannot trace change, but I don't even think it's as meaningful because at some level gets quantified instead of qualified. And I think there's a lot of loss there in terms of significance and also sense of achievement. Yeah, because at the end of the day, I think for a lot of students, it's beyond just the final grade, the number and so on and so forth. It's about what actually has been learned. So losing that would be a great shame. I'm, I'm someone who doesn't understand this really well. So uh, what I was sort of getting at with that feedback before is that if I'm a student and I can ask a question that I don't understand to the large language model, and then 
using my language and my prompt and my logic of developing that prompt, it can give me an answer that I can get involved in an iterative process with, maybe in a way that I can't with a human. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of playing with this, right? Is there an advantage to that type of feedback in addition to the more personalized, relational kinds of feedback that we would hopefully get in a good teaching relationship? Perhaps. I think um, even though I'm not coming from a STEM perspective, I can see, for instance, the ways in which a software program might teach math in a more interesting way than has more traditionally been taught. And just as an example, I'm not very good at math, but if I had an interactive tutorial, which is, I guess, the equivalent of what something like a human mentor might be, that would have been better for me in the classroom growing up. Just instead of having one person just tell me, this is how you do it, step one to 10, I would prefer to be able to stop and say, wait, wait, can I try a problem now? Can I ask a question? Can we try this? Can I do this or that? And I'm saying that as I'm not an expert in math, I'm not a math teacher, but I'm thinking about myself as a student and now and how I was when I was younger, what would I have benefited from? So thinking about that personalized or way of interacting in education is not something that you would get in a lecture with 400 other people in the classroom or 200 people, even 15 people in some cases. Maybe that, though, can be seen as an enhancement of something like a tutorial something in which you get to practice on your own time, it doesn't replace the, the subjective experience and, and, and relationship that you build with the teacher, but it can be an enhanced tool in the same way that a personalized tutor could be. I don't necessarily think though it's the same. Just for instance, people have talked about whether or not ChatGPT can function in the same way as a personal therapist. I mean, Sure, but what is missing there? And that's its own conversation. But just as an example of like that personal touch is completely missing, it seems so much more stark if I were to say, if I were to get medical advice or mental health advice from ChatGPT versus having ChatGPT explain what a sophist is or something like that. Well, let me rewind a bit because I couldn't help but notice the slight sense or maybe more profound sense of, of dismay. Uh, Allison, you expressed it really well. I, I might be offended if I had received this. I want to reorient, you know, just my example to the notion of frameworks, which I didn't really go into detail on. Backing up to the students' feedback to a person, now this is a small group of about six students, the one thing that they said was most profound about the feedback is how personal it was and how much you seem to know what we were thinking. Now, I will give part credit of that to the large language model and part credit to the framework that I brought to my queries. As part of that framework, I have an awareness that the student is interacting with the text. The text is interacting with their research ideas. The student is also interacting with the assignment requirements. And so, Part of the framework that I brought to the large language model was to give a concrete example, given the research that's been proposed, given the student's articulation of this, and given the assignment uh, requirements, are there ways in which this student might not have expressed something? So that, that was literally part of the framework query. In other words, I know I'm dealing with a student who has a degree of uncertainty about their knowledge base and might be hesitant to express something polemically or with uh, a degree of certainty. That single query was a teaching moment to encourage students to recognize that even though they're building their knowledge base on this topic, 
they had implicit thoughts that they could have written. And it was that experience that provoked them to actually not be offended, but in, in contrast, to actually feel profoundly personally heard. The frameworks we bring are absolutely critical. And it's an inspiration to articulate consciously what our frameworks are and their pedagogical effectiveness. Then use the lift, then use the tool to enhance those and do things as an instructor that are literally superhuman. I could have done everything I did for those students. It would have taken me two weeks for a class of six. That's to me the value add. If you neglect the frameworks, you're dead in the water. I completely understand. And that does help. I guess and my point was not at all to criticize the decision to do it. And I absolutely see the value of these kind of detailed, constructive feedback that can be provided by these tools because this is where they flourish. So yeah, I, I absolutely get that. It just, it's also the thing I'm most afraid of in terms of education. So I guess I'm trying to balance those two things. And then just to go back to the point that Curtis is bringing up, I, I do think that, that large language models in general are amazing translators. And I'm not just talking about language to language, I'm talking about discipline to discipline, level to level. And that iterative engagement and just kind of really picking apart ideas that you don't understand going from a simpler version to more complex and more complex is one of the great ways that can be leveraged for students to deepen their understanding of whatever they're learning. Yeah, I agree. And I, I think I mentioned the, the expertise paradox earlier. Maybe it was in the pre-chat. I mean, you can do a little experiment. Everyone can do a little experiment for themselves. You know, take something in which you yourself have profound domain knowledge and query ChatGPT on that topic. Frankly, it won't seem very impressive. Now query something on which you do not have extensive domain knowledge. It will seem very impressive. I call it a paradox because on the other hand, all the emerging studies on implementing GPT assist in workplaces, in education and so on, show an equalizing effect. That is that people with lower domain knowledge get more assist than people with high domain knowledge. And so you have this expertise paradox. And Allison, I completely agree. As perhaps one of our instructor obligations to illustrate how the expertise paradox can be surmounted by starting with our knowledge base and then using the large language model to generate access to a new level of domain knowledge in a kind of cyclical process can bring someone from low domain knowledge to high domain knowledge quickly, assuming consolidation. I'm sorry, I'm a psychologist and I have to talk about consolidation, but that's a totally separate topic. I'm starting to think a little bit about academic integrity, right? So if we're going to engage in this process of blending knowledges and scaffolding it in the way you're kind of describing, what does the institution do with this? I mean, how do we start thinking about academic integrity? Even in so far as I think the use of these large language models, it toys a little bit with our with our own sense of academic integrity. For example, I was sort of chuckling with a colleague the other day because she had received uh, some final papers that were chat GPT produced papers and some others that were just sort of plain old plagiarized. You know, she was thinking to herself, oh, you know, I'm going to give these other students a little bit more credit because they actually had to go to the book and do the reading and figure out some stuff in order to engage in this style of plagiarism versus AI plagiarism. We were kind of laughing about that, but, but the work that you're describing 
this complex process that you're describing, I think is a way that we do have to shift our, our pedagogy into an AI-oriented pedagogy in some way, shape, or form. But then where does academic integrity come in? How are these lines being drawn? Um, are they being drawn in fair places? You know, these are things that I'm wondering about. Lychee, I wonder if you have any thoughts on this. Like you wrote a paper with ChatGPT. And right now, as far as I know, students aren't, quote unquote, allowed to do that. So what are your thoughts about ChatGPT and the use of large language models? In the classroom, um, especially, and I think in my field, it's a little bit inevitable. I try to make that conversation very apparent, and especially because if I'm working with students, for instance, in streams in which they're thinking about something to do with writing or website design or um, other types of broad forms of like content production, I think that there's a lot of fear. So even though they'll use it, there's also fear. Like, look how good this thing is. It's better than me. And that is concerning. The research experiment that I did just in collaborating with ChatGPT wasn't meant to tell them that I'm replaceable either. It was more of a mediation on the fact that this can be a conversation. In what ways are collaborations the way to go forward? So with ChatGPT, the paper's a little bit tongue-in-cheek, and I asked ChatGPT questions, including who's Lychee fan, and then ChatGPT literally said, I don't know, that must not be a very important person. I started and ended the paper with that sort of uh, joking tone about the fact that I wasn't taking this too seriously as if this is the only future and this is also a potential demise. It was more of a, an experiment in what can be done, including in the ways in which there are limitations. So there are two experiments here. One is not public. One that I did, I asked for ChatGPT's background information on certain artists that I was researching. So instead of presenting that information, which can just look like a lit review, I just asked for its feedback. But I would also give feedback and say, I don't think that's a very good representation. You've missed out X or Y. Um, or I'd ask, here's my list. Do you have anything else to contribute? So it was nice to have that extension. And I would start a conversation or I'd ask ChatGPT to prompt me. And we go back and forth and back and forth, almost like a collaborator. The second experiment, which wasn't public, was looking for the ways in which ChatGPT understands narratives in general, narrative structure, if narratives are possible through generative models. Not really, but it, it told me more about its restricted ways of thinking than anything. I just asked ChatGPT to tell me the story of Hansel and Gretel. And then I pointed out that arguably the witch was in the right because the kids were eating her house. And ChatGPT responded, oh, well, I mean, so we had a little banter back and forth. It's like, but the witch was um, like trying to eat them and that's not ethical. And I responded, they arguably provoked her first. I also pointed out a, a mistake in the order of the plot that ChatGPT uh, told me and then it corrected itself. And then at some point said, no, no, I don't have any information beyond that. So we can't continue this conversation. That was interesting. And more so beyond the content that both of us produced, the discussion of what was happening in terms of the performance of writing an essay or the performance of collaboration. That's where my interest was, especially because I was trying to write about the presentation of knowledge, not about Hansel and Gretel and not about artists, actually. Anyway, <laughs> long anecdote. I like the anecdote because I, I think embedded in there are sort of three critical dimensions to approach the question of plagiarism. I mean, what is plagiarism? Unsanctioned copying 
of content. So in order to know if something's plagiarism, you have to know, first of all, what is content and what is content is changing. I think that that really your story really illustrates that what we call content is changing. What is copying and what is something that's sanctioned versus unsanctioned? You know, Picasso embedding a certain shade of color because it's an homage to the Dutch Impressionists. Was that plagiarism? No, that was a socially sanctioned mimicry of a certain content domain. If we can define those three things, and any discussion of plagiarism has to include a discussion of those three things, maybe we have a framework for revising our notion of what constitutes plagiarism. Alison, you're an academic integrity specialist. Plagiarism, it's interesting. So you were talking about, was it you, Chi, who was talking about some old school plagiarism. No, it was Charles that was talking about old school plagiarism, which I'm now referring to as wholesome plagiarism. So for us in our office, plagiarism is defined as presenting somebody else's work as if it's your own without proper attribution. AI is not somebody. So at TMU, instructors interpret policy, right? We administer it, but instructors interpret it. So as these papers are coming in that instructors believe are written by AI, and I just want to say for the record, because I want to get this out there to as many instructors as possible, they should not be using AI detectors. They cannot rely on AI detectors. I want to make sure that gets out there because of all these news stories I hear about instructors failing their entire class because they think they wrote their papers with AI. But we have instructors who interpret the use of AI as plagiarism, which they can do. We have instructors who interpret the use of, and I should say unauthorized use of AI as misrepresentation of effort. We have others who consider it contract cheating. So the way that instructors perceive it says a lot about their perspective on its use. So plagiarism compared to say contract cheating, these exist on a spectrum that is pretty far apart. Contract cheating is considered to be the worst of the worst. You're paying for your grades for all intents and purposes, right? Then on the other side, plagiarism, the kind of wholesome plagiarism is students who don't know how to paraphrase correctly or who are copying, pasting in a pinch, those kinds of things. So there's not consensus among instructors about what this really is. And I think that, I guess, what I feel like my big responsibility is, is really just trying to help people come to terms with the technology and to modify their approach to assessment so that it neutralizes the threat to assessment, right? So uh, you don't wanna neutralize AI, you wanna neutralize the threat to the assessment process. So students can leverage it and be stronger and more capable and potentially develop interdisciplinary skills for a more uh, interesting uh, work product. But we still have to be able to design assessments that maintain the rigor in the course. I have to say, I'm becoming really interested in the affective dimensions of this entire conversation, a number of different descriptions of reactions. So students um, being surprised and maybe delighted at the feedback they're receiving. Allison um, speculating that they might be hurt, right, around this feedback and and sort of the, the wonder and the fear that's embedded in all of this. I'm also reminded of how students learn about academic integrity, sometimes in, in, in kind of harsh ways. I think, for example, like when I was a kid, we were reading Shakespeare in high school and I was struggling with it. And so I found in the library um, Cole's notes. Remember those old books that they deconstruct everything for you? 
And I brought them to class because I found them really helpful. And my teacher told me in no uncertain terms that that was cheating. And that was how I learned what the policy was, right? By sort of stepping into a big mistake and getting scolded for it. And so I am curious about what the three of you might think about the affect that will be circulating in the classroom come September or whenever our next classes are around some of these discussions and around students who are coming to the term knowing that these tools exist, but maybe not exactly knowing what their profs think of them, how the university is going to either mobilize them or enact discipline around them. And I'm curious about what your thoughts are toward the affective dimension of, of this work. Uh, Lai Chi. Thank you, Chelsea, for sharing that story from high school. I'm not sure what the teacher's impulse was there, but to scold or to make example is probably not the right approach, but rather to explain what their concern was with, with you using something like Cole's notes. I'll just say when I was studying for my comprehensive exams, the first thing I did was look at undergrad textbooks on the same field, not because that was the only thing I was going to read, but because I wanted to have a broad aerial view of major themes and terms and people. So I knew what to look out for when I actually got to the reading. Nobody ever called that cheating. It's not like I didn't write my own comprehensive exams. I was not even saving myself time. I was just looking for a map, looking for like a way to process things in a way that I could focus on the things that were most important. Uh, and maybe people could call that cheating because I'm not going through the same hurdles that everybody else has to, like the pain of it all. But is that necessary? There's that affective element of it as well. What do we imagine to be a necessary part of the pedagogical experience or the learning experience? And imagining, for instance, the opposite, that there should be no pain, that there should be no growth and growing pains is not part of it as well. I was really struck by the tweet that I saw the other day that I retweeted by Kelly Vaughn, who's a software engineer. So somebody wrote to her that they had a candidate do a coding test during an interview using ChatGPT, and that the candidate took five minutes to do what should have been a 90-minute coding exercise, but also the assessment of it. They knew it was ChatGPT, but also the code was too perfect and it lacked any depth. Like, quote, and then I'm using air quotes now. We've gone full circle. The code lacked any depth, as in it didn't have a human element of it, but it also was unimaginative. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I'm thinking about what the assessments and what the students' experience ends up looking like when they're done with us, when they leave the institutions, when they leave high school, when they leave college, when they leave university. They have to go into these jobs now and they will be confronted with the opportunity to use any of these tools. They might even be asked to use these tools sometimes. How can they use them smartly? How can they use them to their advantage so that they're not being replaced, but they're also able to work with the tools, not to be replaced by them, but to show what their contribution or their significance is through the tools as opposed to being replaced by the tools. I think bringing that up and also to, uh, to go back to what you were saying about students not knowing what their professors' expectations are, what the professors think. We cannot control how professors will think of these tools, but being transparent about it is probably the, the best way to start. If someone says on day one, I'm not okay with this, now you know the rules. Those are the parameters, and it will change as long as I think professors are truthful with themselves and their students that my way is not going to be someone else's way. 
I think that's what will allow students to adapt, including where they're no longer a student. We have to remember that we have a responsibility to them now, but also to prepare them for what is next. I think all that's absolutely right. And all the emotions around this technology are, um, I think there's a lot that students are dealing with. We have a partnership with Seneca and we're working on a AI literacy module for students that will ultimately be open source. One of the things we want to make sure that we build into it is addressing all the anxiety that students must be feeling right now. They're paying a lot for an education. They're going into fields that are all going to be very likely disrupted in one way or another because of the technology. I'm sure that students are experiencing a tremendous amount of anxiety around that. They're anxious about, and I see this on Reddit, students who are just terrified that their instructor is going to think they use ChatGPT. There's a lot of anxiety that students are dealing with, and, and I think that's one of the things that we want instructors to be really aware of, that by being transparent and talking with students and, and that they can maybe help them navigate the unstable future. Yeah, I, I really appreciate both of those sets of comments. I mean, if we arrive in September and we model anxiety, the students will feel anxiety. If we arrive in September and we are silent, we will generate anxiety. We will generate um, an idea that this is not something to be discussed. If we arrive in September and we model enthusiasm, confusion, fear, if we make all of our ideas and emotions, Chelsea, apropos to your, to your point regarding large language models, and we model troubleshooting and we model responsible use and we model interrogating our own assumptions and we model all of these things rather than something to be feared. I'll jump in with the Stoics, right? The obstacle in the way is the way. The fear and uncertainty surrounding large language models is an unparalleled pedagogical opportunity for us as instructors, I believe, and for our students. That's a, all three wonderful ways to be seeing this and to conclude this conversation. We were talking before we started recording today. After I've heard this today, there's no doubt that we're going to need a part two. So we will definitely invite you all back to do this with us again in a few months' time, perhaps. We'll see, we'll see where we are. You've also convinced me on with your referencing of no fewer than six philosophers that the uh, philosophy degree will be the important humanities degree uh, once again <laughs> as we go forward. In all honesty, thank you all so much uh, for being here and uh, being part of this conversation. It was just absolutely tremendous. Yes, thank you so much for joining us. And also a big thank you to instructional technologist Sally Goldberg-Powell, who produces Podagogies. And of course, we have to thank uh, the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at Toronto Metropolitan University for funding our podcast. And we want to thank Brock University Center for Pedagogical Innovation for supporting this podcast.